Right. Good morning. Sorry, I'd forgotten to turn my microphone on. Uh, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, as our children and our workers are dismissed, Lord, we pray the Lord's blessing on what happens uh, in the back of the building over the next few uh, moments, hours. I'm just kidding. Uh, as uh, that the Lord would just bless uh, and give fruit uh, to them and their learning of God's word. And the same for us this morning. Well, you can turn first in your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and in a moment we'll flip back uh, to Genesis as well. But here we begin, take a break, uh, pause in our study through the book of Ephesians together, and uh, turn our attention uh, during this Christmas season, this Advent season, uh, to, uh, to thinking on what the Lord has done for us in Christ Jesus by sending a Savior to us. And so uh, the, the approach over the next few weeks is uh, we will spend some time with uh, this genealogy here in Matthew and specifically looking at the stories surrounding the women that are mentioned in this genealogy. And so we will look at Tamar uh, or Tamar this week, however you want to say that, Augustine, Augustine, Tomata, Tomata, Tamar, Tamar however you want to say it, all right? Uh, so we'll look uh, at her in, this, in the events uh, with her and Judah this week, and then next week with Rahab, and then we will follow from there to Ruth, and then in the last week we will skip Bathsheba, but we will uh, then the last week look at um, Mary as well. And so uh, this morning our uh, goal will be to look into the events surrounding uh, Tamar and Judah. Uh, together. So by way of introduction, as we prepare our minds and our hearts, and I hope this is, will serve as an introduction really for the whole uh, series as we think on this theme and look together, let me start this way. Two weeks ago, uh, we were at a family gathering, and my wife's older cousin, so he's uh, one of the oldest grandchildren on that side of the family, there's many, was sharing with my children a story about their great-grandfather who they never met. And so as he was sharing one of those fun, crazy stories about their great-grandfather and an event that involved him as a young kid and his interaction with him, uh, you all are familiar with those such stories, right? As you hear back and it's like, yes, this is, this is who your great-grandfather was. This is, who, this is how your grandfather was, especially if it's someone that you never met. This is your uncle, your great-uncle, those family members that you never met. This is the kind of life that they led. This is the kind of personality they had. And those stories are typically followed with something like this. Yes, that's where you come from. Those are your people, right? Those are your people. Well, we all in our families uh, could have those people in our families who could give plenty of material to the trashy daytime TV talk shows, right? We all have at least one crazy uncle or cousin. And it can be lighthearted at times, but it can also be something that fills us with shame and embarrassment. In the spring of 2015, controversy broke out around a PBS show titled Finding Your Roots. The premise of the show was to look into the family trees of famous people and tell them about their ancestors and their heritage. The controversy broke out when one of those who was being featured in the show made headlines because he requested that the show's producers omit the discovery of slaveholding ancestors in his own family uh, tree. And I think to some extent we can all relate. We all have things in our family history that we would like to forget. We have things that we'd like not to draw attention to or even gloss over. Not only that, 
brothers and sisters, friends, this morning, we all have things in our own lives that we'd like to forget. We all have things in our own lives that we'd like not to draw attention to and we'd like to gloss over. Well, Matthew begins his gospel account with the genealogy or a family tree. What is especially interesting is that he doesn't do any glossing over. One scholar points out that a genealogy in Jesus' day is much like a resume today. There are things that we would like to leave off of our resume and our work history. The same was true for Jesus' day in genealogies. The scholar notes that Herod the Great was notorious for doing this himself. Yet Matthew doesn't do this. Why? Why does he not do this as he introduces the genealogy of Christ? I think I have this quote Oh, by the way, there are some PowerPoint slides. Merry Christmas, that's my gift to you. (laughs) And I think I have this quote on the slide. D.A. Carson in his commentary on Matthew says, It's important that in the same chapter, Matthew introduces Jesus as the one who will save his people from their sins. And this verse may imply a backward glance at some of the better known sins of his progenitors. What he says is, as Matthew introduces that Jesus will be the one who will come and save his people from their sins, We can look back from that verse and look back to his ancestry and his heritage. And as we read this, we think immediately of those sins. If you turn to Matthew's gospel, look at Matthew 121. And this is what the angel said to Joseph. He says, Fear not, take Mary as your wife. For that, this is verse 20, which is conceived in her, is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Christ came to identify with us and to save us. The people whom are in his very family are the people whom need his salvation. He came to identify with us and he is one of us. As we think back to our family and say, yep, that's our people. Christ, Matthew is telling us these are his people. These are the ones of whom he has come to save If we go forward in Matthew's gospel, we look there at uh, 3, and we see Jesus being baptized, and there identifying with us through this baptism of repentance. Well, Matthew 3, 1, I mean 1, 3, is where we will look, and then we'll flip back to uh, the book of Genesis. But here in the beginning of this genealogy that Matthew gives of tracing Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, in verse 2, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. Friends, here we read that passage, and we must turn our attention back to the story that centers and introduces us to this, because Matthew is intentionally reminding us that through this genealogy comes and what this scandalous circumstances that surround Judah and Tamar. So let's look back now to Genesis chapter 38, and we'll spend the majority of our time there. We'll come back and look at passages and parts and whole, but my way of beginning our time, let me just read from God's Word. I'm going to begin in verse 24. And we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Genesis 38, verse 24. 
This is God's word. About three months later, Judah was told, Tomorrow your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. And she sent word by, to her father-in-law, By the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah, Judah identified them and said, Excuse me. And then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And when the time had come for her labor, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out the hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, and the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And this is God's word. And may he use this time this morning to nourish us, to call us to himself, to greater holiness, and to salvation. And it is all by the power of his spirit. Brothers and sisters, as we turn our attention here, we notice this passage right in the middle or right at the beginning of what is known as the Joseph narrative. So here, Genesis is ending from chapter 37 all the way through 50, and the predominant figure there is Joseph, right? And so as you begin reading about Joseph in 37, then you pick up on this story here in 38. And I'd encourage you to go and read it in its entirety later on this afternoon. It is scandalous. There are things there that will make you uncomfortable as you read through the entirety of chapter 38. And it can be striking to us that as this launch into the Joseph narrative in 37 stops and takes a pause here with Judah, why is that? In fact, you should go back and think about what we just read in Matthew's gospel. It's significant that Matthew, in giving the genealogy, goes to Judah. Right? Joseph is not mentioned there. And so all of this features large in Genesis, and it is all rooted and grounded here in, verse, in chapter 38. We must understand these events to understand how things move forward from here to where we get in Matthew chapter 1, where Judah and Tamar mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. So first, let me just put Judah in context before we move forward, and then I'll give you the outline but let me show you this, and I think it's helpful. We have it on a slide, and it'll contrast what you see from Judah and Joseph. You may have a hard time seeing that, but I can send this to you as well. And this comes from a scholar named Richard Pratt. And notice the, the parallels that he says you can see in uh, ch uh, verse chapter 38, uh, and then I believe that should be 39 following that, not 37. So... Uh, yes, it should be 39. That's a typo. I apologize. But in chapter 38 and 39... So you can see with Judah, there will be the association with foreign women. With Joseph, there will be the separation from foreign women. With Judah, there will be sexual immorality. With Joseph, there will be sexual morality as he refuses uh, the advances of Potiphar's wife. Judah will be a victimizer. Joseph will be victimized. Judah will experience the judgment of God. Joseph, the blessing of God. Judah will experience a true accusation. Joseph will experience a false accusation. Judah will, confe will confess sin. Joseph will reject sin. 
And so you can see these parallels that will run through this beginning of these two brothers. And so with that in mind, if that kind of helps you in setting the context, and I think if you keep that in mind and we think forward as we will go uh, in a few moments on into uh, further into the narrative in chapters 42, 44, and 49, and take some looks. And so hopefully that will help. So I would encourage you to go back and read at a granular level, but we will, in fact, spend some time at a higher level today, if you will, in the air, looking at this narrative and the theological lay of the land and what God is revealing to us in his word. And so the first, uh, the outline that I'll use today is what I want you to see is long lay the heart in sin, which of course I'm, bearing, I'm borrowing from the Christmas carol there. And then we see the turning point will be my second uh, point this morning. And then we will see a redeemed heart and the fruit of that. And then we will see the promise of a true and better Judah to come. All right. So first, let's think on long lay the heart in sin. So before we look at uh, 38, I want you to back up to chapter 37. So hopefully you're familiar with some extent to this entire narrative of Joseph. But if you remember, Joseph's father showed favoritism to him. Joseph has a dream, right? He has at least two dreams. He has one dream of where the, his father and brothers will be bowing down to him. And so in uh, those two things together with um, Jacob's favoritism of Jodah, uh, Jodah, Joseph, and then also... Uh, the dream that Joseph has had has caused animosity between him and his brothers. We can see that uh, Jacob will ask Joseph to go out and get a report for him. And so he will come upon his brothers. We will pick up there in verse 26 of 37. They're sitting down to eat, and then uh, and they see Joseph, and they plot to kill him. They plot to kill him. So we're going down to 26 because this is where Judah himself speaks up. So look at verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites, for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So here's the plot. He's been thrown into the pit, and the plot was initially was to kill him. And so Judah speaks up and says, hey, let's don't kill him. Why let blood be on our hands? Let's don't shed blood, and let's, we might as well make some money out of this, and we can still get rid of him at the same time. Let's sell him into slavery. And so what I want you to see is what we're seeing is the character of Judah. As we move forward through this, we will continue to see his character. It's a character of, of selfishness, of self-centeredness, of not caring of anyone else but for himself. And so here his, his advice is that we would sell. Now, I want you to notice something, and I wish, well, I don't wish, but if we were preaching two sermons in one, I would preach you a whole sermon on Joseph right here as well, but I'll just give you a snapshot. So look at what is said there of Joseph. It says, The Midianite trader has passed by. He's been thrown into the pit. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. Joseph being thrown into the pit is being thrown into a type of death. And here, he is being raised up out of that pit. And if you follow this story forward, following the threat of Joseph, what you'll see is that he now ascends to power through the betrayal of his brothers and the false accusation of others. 
And he will rule over the Gentiles and be a blessing to them. And he will gather his brothers around him, forgiving them and providing them bread. Does that sound like someone you know? It should. (laughs) It should sound like one you would know. Who also would enter into death and be raised up through circumstances where he has been betrayed by his brothers and under false accusations. Yet he will be a blessing to the Gentiles and will rule over them. And he will forgive his brothers and he will provide bread and life for them. His name is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we will see shadows of things to come all throughout this story as we look at it. I want you to look and just rejoice in the glories of the Lord and his plan of salvation for us. And the patterns that are set all the way back in Genesis, even the ones that we read about in our Advent reading this morning and carry forward and are fulfilled in Christ. Next, turn your attention as we continue to look at Judah and his hard-heartedness. Look at 38, 1 and 2. First, in verse, in verse 1 of 38, It happened at the time of Judah that he went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her. Right? So he takes her to be his wife. So here, here's what I want you to, to see. A couple of things. First, Joseph is torn from his family. Judah leaves his family. Right? Judah leaves his family, marries a Canaanite. And in fact, this is exactly what, what their family was instructed not to do by his grandfather, Isaac, as he sent Jacob out to find a wife. And 28.1, he says, do not marry of any of the Canaanites. And so we see here that Judah is leaving the family and carrying on, and that he's doing the exact things that, is, that he and his brothers and his own father have been instructed not to do. Friends, throughout the Bible, you'll see this over and over as you read through the Old Testament. The issue is, and this will come into clarity when we look at Ruth in two weeks, the issue is not one of ethnicity, it's not racially based. The issue is that they would not turn and marry others so that they would take up their idols and begin to worship other gods of the nations and turn and and be spiritually unfaithful to the one true God, the God who has called them to himself. So we can see in Ruth one who, will, who is willing to forsake her gods and worship the God of Israel. Right? So you can see the contrast there. And so I just want to clear that up for you as you see this. But what does Judah do? There's no care. There's no told of the woman that he goes and takes as a wife to be anything like Ruth. He is leaving his family. He's leaving his people. And he is marrying of the foreign uh, other tribes around him. Uh, with what seems to be no regard for the Lord and his call to his family as a whole. And then, in verses 6 and 7, as you continue down, it says that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Friends, notice that. He's just like his father. What we see is the, the character of Judah and the character of his sons. And so here, the children that he has born uh, are just like dad, and they're wicked in their own right, and the Lord judged his firstborn so much that he put him to death. And then as you move forward, you'll understand as you read this passage uh, that what's going on is what we would understand as leveret marriage. So leveret marriage would be, now that Tamar's husband Ur is dead, is that one of the brothers would give her offspring... Right? So that the name of the brother would continue on. And so this is what Onan, his second born, is to do. 
Onan does not do that. If you read through the passage, he has no problems of having intimacy and relations with her, but intentionally seeks not to impregnate her. And therefore, the Lord judges Onan and strikes him dead. Now, why would Onan not do this? Well, because it impairs his own inheritance, right? If his brother is dead and his brother has no offspring, who's first in line? He is. Therefore, who gets a double portion? He does. So he would intentionally not want Ur to have any offspring so that he would get the double portion of the inheritance, which he seeks to frustrate that plan and make sure and ensure that he gets more for himself. And the Lord judges Onan there in verse 10 and strikes him down as well. Verse 10, and what he did, referring to Onan, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Then look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Notice what he's saying. Judah's thinking, wow, I've lost two sons because of this lady. Right? That's, his, that's, that's his mindset. That's what he thinks. He's ignoring their own wickedness. And he's assuming that this is because of Tamar. And therefore, he says, I'm not giving my youngest son to her, so I'll send her back to her father's house. Right? You'll stay there until he is old enough. And what we see as we move forward in the passage is that Judah seems to have no intentions of ever giving uh, his youngest son to her uh, as a husband. And so here, we are just seeing the hardness of Judah's heart. As that sin begots more sin, and he continues in this pattern of selfishness and focus only on what he wants. If you move forward in 38 and you look down at verse 15, you see when Judah, uh, you'll see first in verse 12, Judah's wife has died. And then you'll see, if you read uh, forward in the passage, that Tamar comes up with a plan. So his wife dies. And then as he is uh, coming to the place of shearing the sheep, she's told that her father-in-law is going to uh, this area. And she takes on for herself off the widow's garment and puts on a veil, dresses herself up, and stands at the entrance to which Judah, passing by, assumes her to be some sort of cult prostitute. And there engages with her and offers her a young goat. But what we read a moment ago is that she asked for a pledge. Now this will just show you the, the wickedness of his heart and how, he, how sin is completely irrational. Right? And so instead, what does she say? She says, I need a pledge. I want your staff, your cord, and your signet. Today, that would be like us saying, here's my driver's license, my social security card, and my credit card. So there's no denial of whose it is, right? There's no denial. He gives it to her and then sends the young goat that he promised to her later, and she is not to be found anywhere, and he just leaves, right? He just leaves and says, let's just move on so that we won't be embarrassed, thinking that his sins will not find him out. So we see uh, in verse 13b, in the midst of this, as she is thinking about this, look at um, verse 13. It says, your father-in-law is going up. And so what we, what we see is, I think I've got an um, error in my notes here. She took off the widow's garment. She wrapped herself up. She sat at the entrance. And then look at as 14b, for she saw that Shelah was grown up. And she had not, uh, and he had not been given to her in marriage, or she had not been given to him in marriage. So you see that Judah seemed to have no intention of ever doing this. 
And then we come down to verse 24. As all this has transpired, as Judah has engaged in what he thought was just uh, an act of, 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 of uh, prostitution with someone who he did not even know, verse 24, and about three months later he was told, your daughter-in-law has been immoral, and moreover she is pregnant through this immorality. And what does he say? Bring her out and let her be burned. If this is not an example of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, of looking at the speck in someone else's eye, like gnawing the log in your own eye, right? That Judah is ready to drop the hammer on Tamar because she has brought reproach and embarrassment on his family as he ignores the fact that he has not done what he promised to do and has left her in limbo in her father's house, not to be provided for, not to have family for herself, not to be able to be married, and just left to what could end up being destitution for her. And here, he says, let her be burned. Let her be burned. And so what do we see in Judah? Well, thus far in Judah, we have the portrait of a godless man. The portrait of a godless man. The epitome of hard-heartedness. The epitome of sin. The epitome of sin begotting more sin and more sin and more sin in his life. With no regard for the Lord or for those around him. Only focused on self. But brothers and sisters, there is a turning point. There's a turning point. There in verse 6, as she is, uh, 26, as she's told that, it says that uh, she'd be brought out. So she sent word to her father-in-law, I'm in the middle of 25, and by the man of whom these things belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah knew immediately when he saw them, they're his. Never mind, he, he, he is, think about the, the sermon Tyler preached two weeks ago. Light has been shown on his sin. The light has come to bear on his sin. Then Judah identified them, and notice what he says. Brothers and sisters, this is repentance. It's a beautiful thing. She is more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I. Since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And then notice this, the fruit of repentance. And he did not know her again. The implication is, is that Judah recognizes now that this is his offspring, that he is responsible for her, yet he would never uh, know her again. Right? And so what do we see? We see first a change immediately. You think about the hard-hearted trajectory of covering tracks, of making sure all the way from Joseph and, and, and just pursuing what you want to busted when he is the one who's in a place of power and authority and could probably still work things out to uh, take advantage of this situation and clear himself and, and bring some sort of retribution down on Tamar. He does not do that. She is more righteous than I. Brothers and sisters, he confesses and he repents. And going forward, the trajectory changes completely. As we move forward from this point, what do we see? We see Judah is a changed man. The turning point is the light is shown on his heart, and he repents. And then from there on, we see this trajectory of where Judah changes completely. And so as this, as this part ends, we return in verse 39, chapter 39, to the narrative of Joseph, right? 
And we see the part of Joseph's false accusations there in, in, the, in the house of Potiphar. P- placed in prison there in chapter 40. In 41, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. At the end of 41, he will rise to power, right, making provision for Egypt in the midst of this famine that will come. And there we get to 42, where Joseph, uh, where Jacob will send his sons down to Egypt to buy bread, and they will intersect with Joseph, right? And we see that Joseph is working in the midst of that, asking about his family. They don't recognize Joseph. He recognizes them. And then telling them in 42 that if they are to return again for bread at any point, they must bring their youngest brother, which is Benjamin. And if you know the story, then you know that dad does not want to send Benjamin, right? Because he's the favored son now. He's Joseph's younger brother. And he doesn't want to send him because he's already lost Joseph. Yet they leave Simeon. Uh, as a pledge. And so you'll see as you read, Jacob will say, I've lost two sons now, yet at the same time, they are desperate for more food and they must send out uh, to go again. And so in 43, we see that's the conversation that's happening. We drop in on that with Jacob saying, you must go back. Yet in verse, thir- in verse 3 of 43, But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us by saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. That is Benjamin. right? If you will send us our brother uh, with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down again. For the man said, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. As the conversation continues, we'll see that Reuben will step up and he'll say, you can, you just take my sons. That's what he says back in 4237. And I'll, I'll, uh, if I don't go, sorry, he says, we go, if we take Benjamin, if we don't bring him back, you can kill two of my sons. Now notice the, the, how crazy that is. But then in 8 and 10, as you see uh, Judah continue, look at verse 8 of 43. And Judah said to his father, to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, that's Benjamin, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also your little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. Now contrast that with Reuben. You can kill my two sons if he doesn't come back. But here Judah says, no, this is on me. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand you shall require him, or from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And so here we see this this complete change in Judah. Think about Reuben. You can kill my two sons. Think about Judah. I'll take it all upon myself. Let me take him. And if he doesn't come back... And if I don't deliver him back to you, then let all the blame fall on me and on me alone. Then you move forward to 44, and we see this pivotal moment that eventually uh, Jacob relents and allows them uh, to take Benjamin because the desperation is so great and their need is great. And as they go, Joseph is there before them, and he's been testing them the whole time. And why is Joseph testing them? Well, Joseph's testing them to see, are they different? Are they different? He knows what they did to him. Is there any difference in my brothers at all? And so as they come and they bring Benjamin into the city, Joseph will set a big feast before them. 
And he places them in birth order, which stands out to the brothers. And then, as you see, as they're bringing the food out, he gives Benjamin five times as much as everyone else. And he wants to know, can we evoke jealousy in these, in these brothers? If, if favoritism is shown to, to Benjamin, are they the same or, are, or have they changed? And there we see as well that Joseph puts the silver cup in the sack of Benjamin and will, and will set up so that when they leave and they are sought out and they chase them down, and they find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, will they then gladly just throw Benjamin under the bus, just like they did Joseph himself? But what do we see in 44? In 18 through 34, this is, I want you to notice what happens. 44, 44 18, then Judah went up to him and he said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to, to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, that's referring to Joseph, and he alone is left to his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see our face or your face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And so there Joseph is pointing out what has, I mean, Judah's pointing out what has transpired and that you have called them to this. And then I want to skip down and look at verse 32. For your servant, he's speaking of himself, Judah, became a pledge of the safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring back to you, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, notice Judah saying, he said, I, I've been a pledge Please, Joseph, allow me to stay and let Benjamin go. Let me. They, have, they don't know that Benjamin didn't take the silver cup. They don't know that this has been set up. But here's Judah willing. Notice the change. Now he's willing. One who has been focused only on self is willing to sacrifice himself. And I want you to look at the last line. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He's not focused on self at all. He's focused completely on his father. What a change. Friends, don't miss this. Do you think that Jacob is completely innocent? Absolutely not. He's shown favoritism to his sons. Do you think that that's harmed Judah in some sense? You better believe it. Do you think that he would long to have the affection of his father that he has shown to Joseph and Benjamin? Absolutely. So is Jacob completely innocent? No, absolutely not. But here, what do we see Judah doing? We see Judah not holding that against his father. But we see Judah being completely selfless and saying, you can keep me here as your servant and do, he has no idea what to him, right? And allow Benjamin to go back because I cannot bear to see this come upon my father. And here we have a man 
who some years before was leaving father and brothers, forsaking them, doing everything that he wanted, and pursuing only his own glory, and now has been completely changed and transformed. And is arising in this narrative as the unexpected hero because of the redemption that's happened in his life. Brothers and sisters, here we see the fruit and the beauty of a redeemed heart. Here we see that the fruit of that is just as John tells us in his letters, that the love of Christ in us results in love for our brothers and sisters around us. It results in a love for others. And here we see that Judah is willing to, to lay down his own life, to substitute himself for Benjamin out of a care and love for his father. And then let me point one more, a true and better Judah to come. What are we doing? Well, we're just pulling on the thread of Judah that runs through this narrative. And so what I want you to see in 49, as Jacob turns to bless his sons, the unexpected begins to happen. And this is exactly why Judah is named there in the genealogy of Matthew instead of Joseph. So look at what's said. 49.8 Judah your brothers shall praise you, and you shall be on the neck of your enemies. That could be an allusion to, you shall crush the head of the serpent. It's not a direct quotation, but it could be an allusion to that. And you shall be on the neck of the enemies. And then look at this, your father's sons shall bow before you. The only other place that that exact turn of phrase is used in the Hebrew in the book of Genesis is about Joseph's dream of his brothers bowing down before him. So here Moses is drawing the connection of the dream of Joseph will now be fulfilled in Judah. What's happening here? I believe that what's happening is, is that God is redeeming Judah to be like Joseph and that there will be a true and better Judah and Joseph to come, right? Who will fulfill both of those. And so here he says, the, they will bow before you. And then Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, from, from here down, what we're seeing is, is a roll back of the curse. And what we're seeing is, is just Edenic result that will come out of that. This, this paradise, if you will, that will come as a result of his reign. So, so let's, let's trace that. So he says, Judah's alliance come. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? I mean, the lion would speak of, of the regal status, of a kingly status. And he says, who, who would dare to rouse him? Who would dare to usurp his rule and his reign and his authority? Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, 
To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now think back to what, what, what is going to happen as we move forward that we mentioned in, in uh, Deuteronomy 17 last week. That the instructions that would be for the king of Israel is that they would have God's word, they would meditate on God's word, know God's word, live God's word, lead God's word. And so here the implication is, is that as his rule and reign, the people shall be in obedience. He shall have the obedience of the people, right? Well, he's leading in the ways of God and they are following his suit and they are walking in the ways of God. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine. Stop. No one would do this. Anybody got, anybody do any gardening? Not me. It's a lot of work, right? You're not going to, if you bind a donkey to the choice vine, what's he going to do? He's going to eat it. He's like, this is the best day I've ever had, right? He's going to eat every bit of it, consume it. Why would you do this? Only if there is flourishing and plenty of abundance would you bind the donkey to the choice vine and say, enjoy yourself there, little buddy, right? Enjoy it. And so here, what do we see? We see the result of thorns and thistles being removed and he says, you'll bind the foal to the vine, his donkey colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Wine's expensive. You're not washing your clothes in wines unless there is flourishing in abundance. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What's the picture? The picture is perfect health. And so here what we see in this blessing is that, that he, will he will be on the neck of the enemies, victory over the enemies. That all will bow to him and that he will have an enduring rule and reign in the ways of God that will result in beauty and flourishing for his people. Brothers and sisters, this is the promise that will not find its fulfillment until we get to Christ. This is a promise that, that will not find its ultimate fulfillment until we get to the true and the better Judah that is to come. Until we get to the one who is willing to lay down his life, not just for his brother, but for his enemies. And to bring his rule and reign full and final as a blessing on his people. Three points of application this morning. First, there's a gospel call. Friend, if you're here this morning, I want you to know that as we began, just as our families have things we'd like to gloss over, as I said, we have it in our own lives. Yet there is no need to gloss over anything. There's no need to attempt to sweep things under the rug and pretend they're not there. Christ knew full well what he came to accomplish. And in that first Christmas, when God came down in his son, Jesus Christ, he came to confront the ugliness of sin and death that is ours and be victorious over both the sin that enslaves us and the death that awaits us and offer us this beautiful picture of flourishing in life that we just saw a glimpse of in Genesis 49. He came and took death for us and offers blessing to us 
that he alone earned and that he will bring to full and final completion through his rule and reign. That's good news. See, that's the news of, of, of Christmas, that, that some people want to say that, that Christianity is escapism. It's not escapism. There is nothing else that is more real and true to the problem that confronts us than the message of Christianity and that Christ came down and confronted it head on and defeated sin and death for us. There's nothing escaping about it. It's confronting. And Christ entered into death and he came out the other side victorious through his resurrection. And he offers that victory to you and to I. This morning, the first call is a gospel call to let the light of the gospel shine in on your heart like it did on Judah and to repent and say, you know what? My way leads to nothing but shame, pain, sorrow, and ultimately death, but Christ has offered a better way for me and I will follow a king who laid down his life for me. Repent and be saved. Second, gospel fruit. Brothers and sisters, in the life of Judah, we saw that the fruit of this repentance in his life and, and, and the way that we saw it identified, we could think about many, many things throughout Scripture, but, but the thing that we primarily saw is, is one who went from caring only about self, who was selfless and cared about others. So what about you and I? What about you and I? As, as we're confronted with, with this story of Judah, do we have that care? Because it's a Christ-like care. Philippians 2, Paul makes this clear. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though... Right, he was highly exalted, right? He took on the form of servant and he came and he served to the point of death and even death on the cross. I mean, it's just a step lower and lower and lower as he humbled himself to serve you and I. And so Paul is calling the church to this kind of humiliation. Think not to your own, own, your own interest only, but look to the interest of others. Put others before yourself. You have this in Christ Jesus. So what about you and I? Do we see that fruit in our lives? And where we don't, are we willing to go to the Lord and say, Lord, help, help, produce this in me, make me humble. Give me a heart that, that seeks not my own glory, but your glory and the good of others. And that I would seek to love, to pursue them. Ask the Lord, where, where should this manifest in my life right now? Where are areas in my life where I am not showing a care for those around me? And let this fruit manifest in me. Third, gospel hope. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Brothers and sisters, Christ has come. As we saw in that first in our Advent reading this morning. And he will come again. And when he comes again, we will know the fullness of this blessing that we just read about in Genesis 49, 8 through 12. We will know all enemies subdued under his feet. We will know his rule and reign and justice and righteousness and mercy and grace and love. And we will flourish under that rule and reign. And no more will sins and sorrows or thorns infest the ground. For he will come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He'll root every bit of it out and do away with it forevermore. That's good news. 
There is nothing you can get in this Christmas that will even pale in comparison to that. It's dust in the scales to the glory of God and the rule of Christ Jesus for our joy. That's the most Piper line I've ever said, and I didn't even read that from John Piper. But brothers and sisters, that's good news. That's good news. And so this morning, what is your hope in? That's the question. I would encourage you to root that out a little bit. It'll be a little bit painful to think about the lesser hopes that you're placing and resting on. It may be the completion of a project. Oh, then I can rest. It may be the completion of, 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 a, of a degree, of a graduation, of a, of a certification. It may be the completion of a retirement savings. It may be the completion of, of getting the kids grown and gone. It, may, it, may, it could be all kinds of things. It may be actually trying to, to, to get to marriage, to get to, child, to get to parenting or whatever it is. There's all these things that can be good things that we will, will anchor and they'll make mile markers for us and say, if I can just get there and we're placing our hope there. Yet those things will never satisfy. It is only when we're oriented by the hope that is found in Christ Jesus that we can navigate all those things that I just mentioned, which are good things, and do it well for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. But brothers and sisters, we have to reorient our hearts daily and continually as we, as we lay before us God's word and we read and look into it like a mirror and say, Lord, where am I setting my hope? Because there are so many opportunities for me to rest it here, 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 and none of those things can sustain. Only in Christ can we be sustained. And then brothers and sisters, as we wait, there will often be suffering. Advent is all about waiting, is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Just as you wrap presents and kids are like, can we open them now? Can we open them now? Right? No, we gotta wait. We gotta wait. Brothers and sisters, on a much bigger scale, we are waiting on the Lord's return. And we are longing for that return. And as we wait, we often will suffer. But we must pray that the Lord would use that suffering to take a little bit more of our hearts away from the hopes of this world and place them on Christ and Christ alone. And that we would wait patiently until He returns. And that we would pursue the holiness he's called us to and proclaim this good news to others. Because he waits patiently that more sons and daughters may come to glory, as the Apostle Peter said. So, brothers and sisters, may we join in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we, we look at Judah, and I, I pray that as we look in your word this morning and see him, that, that our response is praise and adoration to you. For we see in him one whom you absolutely transformed and changed, a beautiful redemption for your glory. Oh Lord, through your grace and mercy and the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit, would you work just such a beautiful redemption in our own hearts and lives. Transform us as those who only care for self to be those who care for you, your glory, and for the good of others around us. Father, I pray for any who don't know you that they would see their need for Christ even in this story of Judah. And they would see the redemption you offer and they'd be saved. 
Lord, I pray for the fruit of that in our lives as, as your people, that we would love others and that we would have patient waiting as we set more and more our hope on Christ and Christ alone. So this Advent season, Lord, we pray that we will recognize the glories of Christ who came down to save people like us who are messed up, helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves, yet you have sent a Savior to us in him. We praise you for that, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.